Would you remain standing and pray with me, please? Father, Lord, we ask now that may your light shine upon your word. The God, that you would reveal to us those things that you would have us to take away from here today. Lord, through the preaching of your word, God, I pray that I, as a mere man, may decrease and that, Jesus, you may increase. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as many of you know, we're in a a summer series. We veered away from the lectionary just a little bit this year, and uh, particularly over the summer, and are in the book of Ephesians. And so uh, as I, back in the spring, began to pray about what God would have me to preach on through the summer, Ephesians came up, and then a little bit later on, I was looking in the lectionary, actually, and I'm like, lo and behold, there's Ephesians. But we're not following the order of the lectionary, and uh, just because of the way the weeks run. And so this morning, if you brought your Bibles, or take out a pew bottle, I'm going to encourage you to open them back up to Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 1, the passage that uh, Cornell read from, Ephesians 5, 1, that's where we're going to begin. But just as a a way of backing up just a little bit, uh, if you weren't here last week, um, last week in Ephesians, many of you were here, we saw from Ephesians 4, 17 to 32, that Paul showed us essentially how we are to grow into who we are in Christ. And that uh, he encouraged us or exhorted us that there are actions that we are to put off from our old life and to put off our old identity just as one would take off old shabby clothes. And then he encouraged us or exhorted us that in order to grow into our new identities in Christ and who we are as new people, new creations in Christ, we're to put on, just as we would new garments, the identity of Christ and certain actions and behavior. For example, last week, Paul told us to take off from ourselves, just as we would a jacket, falsehood, but then to put on truth. He encouraged us to take off anger that controls us and to put on anger that is righteous, the type of things that God gets angry about. He said to take off theft and to put on generosity, to take off the language of cursing, to put on a language of blessing, to put off all hostility, but yet to put on kindness. And then last week we concluded with an analogy, a very simple analogy of blue jeans. And I said this, that our old sins, our old vices, bad habits in life are just like an old pair of blue jeans. That just as our old blue jeans are sometimes more comfortable and that they fit us really well and seem to just be us and seem to just be who we are. New habits, a new heart, or excuse me, our old genes are like that. They just seem to be kind of us. They seem to kind of form to us. And that are these new habits of heart, mind, and action that both Paul and Jesus call us to are like new blue genes in the sense that they feel awkward. They don't seem to fit our new life and are just not us. But however, after wearing these new patterns of habit and heart and soul and life out in the world for a while, just like, or just like with new blue jeans, these habits get worn in on us. They get broken in on us. And it's not long that we begin to actually prefer the new habits of heart, mind, and soul over against the older ones. Well, this morning in Ephesians 5, 1 to 21, Paul's going to continue that conversation and discussion about new ways that we are to live out the Christian life. And essentially, we're going to explore three concepts regarding our walk with Jesus. Number one, Christians are to be imitators of God. Number two, the Christian way of life involves certain ethics. And number three, the Christian way of life is lived in the light. 
So number one, Christians are to be imitators of God walking in love. And that's found in verses uh, one and two. Actually, we're going to need to back up to uh, Ephesians 4.32. Back up one verse, if you would read with me. Beginning with verse 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay? Well, I backed up to verse 4, um, 32, because, or excuse me, chapter 4, 32, because it directly ties in to verse 5, 1. Because essentially this, being kind and being loving, tenderhearted, those things and having a forgiving spirit are really the closest ways that you and I can imitate God. Well, how are we to be imitators of God? Well, Paul goes on in chapter 5 and says that just as a child imitates their parents, so, as, so are we as his beloved children to imitate our Father who forgives us through Jesus Christ. But now let me ask you something this morning. How would it be if God were always making snarky remarks to and about us? What would our worship and prayer life be like if we thought God had been talking about us behind our backs and putting us down to others? How would we feel if we thought we could not trust God to tell us the truth? Or what if God was always losing his temper with us, grumpy all the time, was arrogant with us, seemed aggravated at us all the time? Let me ask you this. Friends, how do you think people feel about us if that's what we are like all the time, but yet call ourselves his children? Would it not then be better to be like God instead? It goes back to that question I asked you a minute ago. What does it look like to imitate God? Well, it looks like imitating Jesus Christ on the pages of the Gospels. It looks like the self-giving love that led Jesus to freely give up the right to himself for others. It looks like Jesus, who was willingly, willingly crucified to be a ransom for you and for me, people who do not deserve it, to pay for our sin. To imitate Christ is to imitate his unconditional love that depends not on the merit, the attractiveness, or response of the one loved. But it's a love that loves for the sake of giving and not getting or expecting something, even love in return. But friends, I've noticed something in my 25 years of being pretty close to the world of church. Many times, unfortunately, instead of us, including myself, imitating God, or even at times pointing others to God, who do we want people to be like mostly in the world? Yeah, I heard it. Somebody said us. Yeah, I've got the word me written there. I was depending on you, Ty, because no, 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 it's not you. It's me, okay? <laughs> no, right, right, me. Get it right. Listen, we in our self-centered worlds too often think that the world and the church would just be better off if everyone in it were just like who? Jesus? No, oftentimes me. You say, what do you mean? Here's how this works. After about 15 minutes, we all run out of good things to say about everything, right? And because we're often not content with who we are in Christ, 
And not content with who God tells us we are in his word, like Ephesians 1 through 3, we tend to do the get into these little ego comparison things against those around us to find our place in the world and to establish a pecking order. And so we began to look around at each other trying to size each other up. And when we find someone a little farther down the road on our spiritual journey, we'll say things like, well, yeah, I don't know who they think they are. Coming in here all educated and spiritual stuff in the Bible like they're better than everybody else. And we begin to tear them down. And then, you know, if we continue to look around like this, doing this, we can always find someone a little further behind us on the path with Christ. And be like, good grief, what is wrong with them? I made it through my tough circumstances. I did not roll in my mess. I made it through my tough life. I just got my act together, believed this about God, and everything was fine. Where is this person's faith? If Jesus is really who he says he is to this person, then should they not be acting like it? Friends, Jesus never anywhere in the Gospels, nor did Paul say, go and make disciples of yourselves or of ourselves. Paul did not say, be imitators of yourselves. He said, be imitators of who? God. And so, friend, in our world, our walk with Jesus, our sanctification in our Christian life, and how we do things, i.e. the me or the I, is not what we are called to imitate. The life of Jesus is what Paul calls us to imitate in love. Imitate Jesus in love. But you know what? I'm going to have to get a drink of water just for a second. You know what? Culture, the church back then, and even the Ephesians today, or the Ephesians back then and the church today all tend to be a little confused about what a life of love really is. So Paul does this, this uh, does us a favor. In verses three through seven, he kind of clarifies that for us. And that's point number two. A Christian way of life has certain ethics involved. And that's verses three to seven. And I'm not gonna read those for sake of time, but in Ephesians three to seven, Paul lists six things that are not to be part of the Christian life, similar to that putting off thing we went through last week. Number one, he says sexual immorality. Number two is impurity. We have then covetousness, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse jesting. But again, because of time, I'm just going to hit one, and everyone's going to probably know which one I'm going to pick. It's going to be the top one. It's sex. Why? Because it's pretty apparent if you just look around in our world today that our Western culture worships sex. Advertising firms use sex all the time to sell things from clothing to cheeseburgers. Now, friends, I don't watch that much TV at all. Not because I'm that holy, because I simply just don't have time. But the other night, um, we were watching TV on our old school tube type TV. That's right, and that's right. You can go ahead and laugh. We don't have a flat screen. We've got an old school tube type TV. And I got to be honest with you. I guess it's because I haven't just kind of paid much attention to it. I, I was really astounded by how foul TV ads are and the shows that are being promoted on syndicated channels. I mean, every it seemed like every time the commercials came on, it's more skin. It's just debauch, raunchy mess kind of everywhere. <laughs> and older guys, let me ask you something. <laughs> Do you really, and I, I mean, and, and I mean, for young years, this is going to be a little bit on the edge, okay? But young, older guys, do you really go see your doctor for pills because some younger woman in her underwear on a TV ad says that you need to go do so? 
I mean, really? I mean, I get it that there's medical conditions out there, but for good grief, just, really? And then I'm going to hit another one here. What about this magic mic garbage I keep seeing? Christian ladies getting together in crowds to go see. Listen, I'm just going to go ahead and say it this morning. You wonder why you don't have a husband. Or you wonder why you're having problems with the one you have now. And ladies, do you even have the audacity to get mad when you go watch stuff like that, but then you catch him on the computer looking at porn? Say, so, well, Father Keith, you're such a prude, man. I mean, what are you, like a 90-year-old man stuck in a 30-something-year-old body? <laughs> you know, Father Keith, if you just read some of the latest psychological studies and become enlightened, you'd see that it's really not about sex, but it's about love, even godly love. This is the way the argument continues to go. See, see, our sexuality has been suppressed throughout the history of mankind. And that God made us sexual beings and he wants us to experience and enjoy whatever inclinations we feel. Because when we are being true to our feelings, that is when we are being true to our most true, true and real selves. So if a man has sexual desire for a man, it's okay for him to act that out. And if, it's, and if a woman has sexual desire for a woman, it's okay for her to act that out. And if a man and a woman want to have sex outside of marriage, that's completely okay for them to hook up. And if a man or a woman thinks that they are actually, or thinks somehow in their mind that they are actually the opposite sex, that's okay too. And Father Keith, to say otherwise is to say that our feelings which God made us are evil, that God has made a mistake, and it is unloving and unkind, unchristian, hypocritical, and bigoted and unJesus-like for you to challenge me or tell me that I can't what I can and cannot do sexually with or without my body. Because I'm being true to myself, and it's about love. Now, friends, I know those are, those are strong words. And this is one of the things that's going on in our culture. Listen, I, I don't know why we act like this sexual stuff is new. Because you know what? In my study this week, I found out it's really not. Because some 1950 years ago, if you do your homework and you go and you look, artwork and archaeological evidence makes it real clear that sexual acting out was not a hidden part of the Ephesian culture that Paul addresses. In fact, it wasn't hidden, but it was endorsed. The Greeks among whom the Ephesians lived had openly approved of open sex, casual sex, homosexual practices, as well as prostitution. In Athens, a temple was built to Aphrodite or Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And you know how they did it? With money earned from government-owned and run brothels. Now, friends, there's a way for the government to raise money. <laughs> Blows my mind. In Pompeii, archaeologists uncovered many paintings going back to 79 A.D. Paul wrote in 65 A.D. and 79 A.D. in Pompeii on walls and homes that give fair indication that casual sex, hooking up, homosexual practices were okay and out in the open. And then as I began to read the church fathers, somewhere around that very same period, 100, 100 250 years, somewhere wrote constantly and consistently about sexual, sexual immorality in the culture. And I got to be honest with you. In some of the places they describe things I would never bring to this pulpit, but let's just say it would make the worst episodes of Law and Order SUV look pretty tame. And so all this stuff today about sexual freedom and sexual revolution in our culture today that you read all about in the Huffington Post is really nothing new, nothing freeing, and nothing revolutionary. In fact, it's quite old. Paul had to deal with it then and around the church 1950 years ago in 65 AD. 
And friends, I'm not completely unaware. I mean, I do, some would probably say I live kind of under a rock and that's okay. But listen, there, there, there are a lot of things out there on the matter of sexual ethics today and same-sex relationships and open practice of all these things and marriage, et cetera, et cetera, that really sound big. They sound new. They sound important, sometimes sound scientific, and sometimes can actually be very convincing. But Paul said it to the Ephesians then, and I don't have time to list all the ejections and go through all that stuff. That'd be another sermon or a teaching moment outside of this pulpit. But he, Paul said this to the Ephesians, and I think it's just applicable to us today. In verse 6, he says, Let one, no one deceive you with empty words. After going through this long list of things, he says, Let no one deceive you with empty words. You say, Well, Father Keith, why are you so hard on sex? Well, this week, throughout my research, I found this quote by N.T. Wright. Here comes my N.T. Wright quote for the week. N.T. Wright says this. He says, because, get this, because sex is good and an important part of God's creation, and because sex is a mean of true spiritual intimacy and mystery between a husband and wife, and because sex is a means of procreation, and because sex is a means of great blessing and emotional fulfillment, people on the road to genuine human existence promised in Christ must avoid all cheap imitations. He goes on to say, sex outside the bounds of marriage between a man and woman is, get this, a mere parody of the real thing. In other words, it is not the real thing. It, the, the, the things that we're seeing held up today are not real love. They're fake. Why did Paul rail against sexual sin so hard? Probably because of this. We don't have this advantage right now, kind of where we're at right now. He saw the effects of that type of sin in the Ephesian culture up close and personal. The Apostle Paul saw the damage that it caused people. He saw people dying with health complications from such. He saw the emotional problems that it caused in people's lives then. And like the church fathers some 25 years later who went into even more graphic detail, Paul was warning to people saying the same way the church fathers, this isn't good. A question for you today is why is it we are so arrogant in this culture that we assume that it will be different today than it was 1950 years ago? Let me ask you, what is the difference? What has changed in the human heart? Then Paul goes on to wrap this up with a dire, serious warning. Ephesians 5, 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ in God. Ephesians 5, 6, he says, let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Friends, let me tell you, I, that is a strong, strong, strong warning. Now, lest we all feel condemned, because we're all probably guilty of some of the actions, not just the sexual things, but the idolatry and the covetousness and the, all the other things that Paul mentions there. Does that mean that we cannot inherit the kingdom of God? Does that mean that we're beyond God's redemption? Does that mean that we're outside of the bonds of Christ? Listen, pastorally, let me be very clear. Paul is not talking about people who have a once in a while slip up in life and sin. Nor is he talking about people who struggle with the temptations of any of these sins that he lists. 
Paul is not talking about people who sin, feel horrible about it, confess it, and then choose to live a life of repentance with the help of God fleeing these sins. No, those who do not inherit the kingdom of God are those who have given themselves up to a constant lifestyle of the sins outlined in verses three to seven, who practice them without shame and repentance. And not only that, but live those sins out proudly and live those sins out approvingly and defensively and are bitterly hostile to anyone who may challenge them or who may challenge them. And so Paul says in Ephesians 5, 7, therefore, talking to the church, do not become partners with them. But, he says instead, those who follow Christ, the Christian light way of life is to be done this way. It's to be lived by walking in the light. Look at verses eight, or begin, look at verse eight and nine with me. Paul writes, he says, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. When Paul says, do not become partners with them, some have read this to mean that we don't associate with sinners at all in a church. But that's not true. What Paul actually means is this, is that we're not to become co-participants or joint partakers of their sin. But instead, doesn't even say fight them. It just says instead, we're to be children of light in the midst of such. Which begs a question. How do I know that I'm walking in the light of the Lord? Well, there's three words in verses 5, 9 that act as a guide or maybe even a secret decoder ring to help us walk in the light of the Lord in just about any situation we may find ourselves in. And it's these three words. The word good, right, and true. If you've got your Bible open this morning, I'd encourage you to circle those. Why? Because really there are three questions to ask yourself and about any given situation to see if, as we, to see that if, if we are walking in the light of Christ. What are, is that? Well, number one, the word good. And so when we're in the world, we've got some questions. Because sometimes, I'll just be honest with you, the Bible doesn't define everything, right? I mean, I have people ask me questions about that all the time. Well, what about this? Well, what is the will of God for this situation? Or it's kind of a situational ethic thing. Well, in this situation, blah, 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 blah. What, what is true about that? I can't, I've, looked, I, you know, I've looked at my concordance. I can't really find anything. Paul gives us kind of a key here. Good. Ask this question. In what, in what I'm doing or participating in, what is the highest good and what is the most virtuous thing I can do? Does it lead to what God calls good? Number two, right. Is what I am doing or participating in right or fair? Does it impart or hold up the highest sense of justice for all involved? Is it the right thing to do according to God's word? True. Is what I'm doing or participating in absolutely true? Does it square with God's word and what is really true in the world? See, friends, asking yourself, is this ultimately good? Is this ultimately right? Is this ultimately true of about any situation? And then exploring that honestly, you're on the path to walking in the light. If you do that honestly with integrity you'll begin to discern the will of God in your life. And you'll also begin to know what is pleasing to him. 
If you begin to walk through asking yourselves what is good, right, and true, it will help you avoid getting caught up in the works of darkness and even help to expose work of darkness that you need to avoid. And if you explore what is good, right, and true in your life, it will make you wise and impart to you wisdom and growth as a Christian. That's the remaining verses of Ephesians. So, well, Keith, that's just about as vague as it can be. I don't really understand quite what, how that works in a Christian life. If, if, if I'm exploring what is good, what is right, and what is true, how, how does that work out? How do we be children of light? How do we walk in light? The only way I really know how to, the only analogy I could come up with this week to explain this, it's, it's kind of like this. A few weeks ago, or actually a couple months ago, I went to the women's retreat at St. Francis to do a couple service, services for them. And on Saturday night, um, after the services, uh, I, I uh, hung around a little bit because some of the ladies wanted to speak with me and talk with me. And we were just kind of generally out hanging around having a good time. Well, what I didn't realize is, is my hermitage that they'd got for me is a good 1,500 feet away uh, from the main retreat center over in the woods. Well, what other thing I didn't know is that Father Louis, the guy who runs the place, blows the lights out up there at 10 o'clock. And when I mean blows the lights out, it's in Stoneville, North Carolina. It's not Stoneville, it's Stoneville, if you're from there. It's Stone, and, and, and literally, I mean, it's out kind of in the middle of nowhere. And when he turns off the lights on the campus, I mean, it is dark. And when I mean dark, it's not just a little bit dark, it is pitch black. And so Father Louis cuts out the lights. I didn't know that. I go outside, and it's completely dark. There's no moon. I don't have my phone with me because it doesn't work up there anyway. Uh, I can't see anything. Well, you know, I grew up in the country and stuff and things like that, and you learn things after a while. When you go out in the darkness like that, hang around for about five minutes, eventually your eyes will adjust, right? Well, I did that. Guess what didn't happen? <laughs> I couldn't see anything. I couldn't see my hand hardly this far in, my in front of my face. So I began to walk around <laughs> and began to see just these faint, ever so faint little gray shadows. Now, mind you, I've also got to go up these large steps that are turning and winding and go up over this hill and are out of these really sharp rocks. And so it was really just individually, I, I had to kind of literally just walk real slow like this because I knew where my cabin was and it had a light on the outside of it. So I could make out these faint, vague, just what I was saying, very vague shapes, but I kind of knew where I was going. Began to feel my way up those steps and began to just inch along, taking every step so cautiously. Well, then all of a sudden, once I kind of wander through the darkness, if you will, I crest the hill and guess what I see about another thousand feet away? My cabin. But there's a problem with that, right? The lights are so dim and for whatever reasons, they don't draw and build anything up there in a straight line. There's this path that goes through the woods like this. So and I still can't see, okay, the path in front of me. So I'm walking through. I'm waiting to run into a tree. I'm waiting to just bust my nose and come in with a broken nose the next morning. Anyway, I'll hurry up and get to the point. I finally keep wandering around ever so slowly, just seeing a very, very, very faint outline of the path. And then eventually, of course, you know, I, I wander through these woods and, and I get to the lights are shining. And, 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 it, and I got to be honest with you, I was really thankful for lights at that point. All of a sudden, shining to, to direct me where to go. What's the point? Friends, it's much the same way in your Christian life. Listen, I can't hold up this and find every single situation that goes on in your life. 
And the other thing is, is a lot of us, we come to Christianity or come into the Christian life. We're in a world of darkness, okay? And we're trying to figure out what that path is. And just like I walked out of that retreat center up there into the dark, we feel like, wow, I stepped out of something that was kind of clear over into another world of darkness. And you're telling me to crest the hill and go over here's home where the light's at? Yeah. How are you going to get there? Exactly the same way, praying and looking for the ever slow, faintest signs of light individually as you walk in your life with Christ until you finally get up to the point that you can crest over the knoll and that you can see the hill. And when you crest over the knoll and you can see the hill where there's three crosses with one beaming, with light shining on it, it's Jesus Christ who's saying, come, follow me, come, follow me. You know what? You're on the right path at that point. Christian life is exactly the same way when we begin it. A lot of times when we begin, we don't see clearly. We don't really have an absolute roadmap of where we're going, but we can be one thing for sure. If we will follow him in faith, he will not leave us alone until we are where we need to be, and that is walking in light, the light of Christ in the world. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your love. God, we thank you for your grace and your kindness. God, we thank you that you forgive us, that, Lord, even if some are here today, that, God, um, some of these things are tremendously convicting, that, God, that you do not leave us condemned where we stand, but, God, that you are the God of forgiveness, Jesus, that nothing that we can do can separate us from your love. And so, God, I do pray for this congregation that as we live out our Christian life and sometimes find ourselves in the darkness, that, Lord, we will trust you in the darkness But Lord, not stand still, but to continue to walk in the path and search. God, knowing that you will guide our footsteps, that you will illuminate our path as we continue to walk and follow you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we make this prayer. Amen.